Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Keys 107, opening the doors to endless possibilities in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness with your host, Rafika and Brother James. Well, it's another Financial Thursday here at the Keys 107 Network. I am Rafika, and I am so happy and honored to spend this time with you. We got a hot show for you, a hot topic. You know, anytime you talk about Trump and what Trump is doing, it's hot, hot, hot. Uh, My co-host, Brother James, is on his way into the studio. Uh, Our co-host, Haroon Niket, here. He's on standby. And I want to just take a moment and just bow my head in silence and give honor and tribute to a great singer, a great spirit in the entertainment industry who has blessed us with such great songs as Everybody Plays the Fool and Just Don't Want to Be Lonely. I got word about five minutes ago that he passed away today. So most of you may know him as Cuba Gooding Jr.'s father. So my condolences in the Keys 107 family sends our condolences to the Gooding family. And we are ready to get started, but you know what we have to do. We have to first encourage you, advise you to go get your pen and your paper, get ready to take some notes because Haru's topics span from the swinging pendulum anti-globalization and nostalgia. Only only Haru can come up with that kind of conversation when talking about the Trump economy. He's going to talk about the Trump promise. Ooh, I can't wait to hear that one. And he's going to also talk about how Trump did sign 66 executive actions so far. So that's just a snapshot of what we're going to be talking about today. Get your pen and your paper. Those of you who are listening online, you can call in at 213-943-3618, 213-943-3618. And I encourage you, don't be shy tonight. Call in. The chat box is open on Facebook. Twitter is open. Get involved. Medea Allen and the Healthy Tip of the Day is up next. I'll be right back. The Keys 107 presents The Healthy Tip of the Day. The Healthy Tip of the Day is to rest when you feel tired. How many times have you went for coffee or energy drinks to give yourself a boost when feeling tired? The best way to battle fatigue is to surrender and rest. Sometimes a power nap of 20 to 30 minutes is all you need to re-energize. If you find that you're still feeling tired after a power nap, consider getting more rest at night. Getting adequate rest is just as important as good nutrition and exercise for a healthy lifestyle. You'll feel more alert, focused, and get more done in less time when you allow yourself to rest when you feel tired. Today's healthy tip of the day has been brought to you by Organic Soul Chef Medea Allen. For more healthy lifestyle tips, sign up for my newsletter at organicsoulchef.com. 
www.thebrightsideofmarriage.com. Now, 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 back to the keys. 107 with your host, Rafika and Brother Jay. And, you know, Medea Allen always brings it at the right time with the right message. And, you know, her suggestion to get rest is so very critical, especially when you got all this chatter in your mind and you just can't shut it down. She says, just take a break, stop, and nap. I like that. Brother James, check in. Your mic is live. Yes, Brother James is here. I'm looking forward to this conversation because I believe we're going to hear a lot of things and get some clarity on what's going on with the economics based upon having new leadership in the White House, that Donald Trump. Yeah. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to hearing what that Haru has to say about this. And I'm so excited. So I'll be taking some notes as well as asking some, some questions. And um, let's get this show on the road. You know, I think it's going to be nice to talk to somebody calm about this topic. So, Haru, your mic is live. Check in. Is is he still there? (laughs) Well, his mic is live, so, um, yeah, so we're going to give him a chance to get it together. And, you know, I think when we was trying to go over what we were going to talk about on this Financial Thursday, here at the Keys 107 Network, uh, we I had wanted to go in another direction. And Haru says, listen, I can't do a full show on that topic. And I'm like, okay, so what do you want to do it on? And he's like the Trump economy. One of the things that I always know about Haru is um, he keeps a keen ear on what's happening with the government. Because as he said in previous shows, that you really can't understand the economy until you check in with that area, because sometimes that sets the precedence on what happens in other areas. Absolutely. Um, economics and politics are intertwined. And, you know, really, um, politicians are in position or, 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 or are elected or are selected to be in position to protect the economy or to help the economy grow, meaning those who are in business uh, see it fit to uh, have someone who would look after their best interests in office. So let us, you know, really uh, uh, take a look and see what interest is Trump actually going to be champion in his uh, his days in office. And that's, you know, that's going to be a very interesting look, and it will be an eye opener for most of us. Yeah. So, um, Haru, your your mic is live. Okay. Oh, so we had a little problem. Yeah. All right. So sometimes you know Murphy gets in 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 those headsets and. <laughs> You got to kick yeah, him out. <laughs> but, yeah. So I, I really want to start. I mean, first of all, this is, a, I think, as you said, an extremely important um, topic. And sometimes we try to glance over the importance of it because we say, well, you know, a person's only there, you know, for a short amount of time. And, you know, um, what big deal is it? it? It's actually a very big deal. And it's going to change the way we do business. It's going to change the way we invest. It's going to affect. Um, job. It's going to affect the global marketplace, you know, so if you don't understand it, you can quickly get consumed by all of the changes and be on the losing side of it. And my thing is no matter what, you know, a, a person in authority does, we have to find a way to capitalize on that and use it to our advantage. 
And that's, you know, it doesn't matter if you agree with, with the politics or the policies or not. If they're going to happen, then we might as well take advantage of it and be able to profit um, until we have an opportunity to use our political will to change things. Mm. So, well, that's a good the, point. The, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, as you said, I, I started with this crazy concept, the swinging pendulum, you know, um, which really is talking about populism, anti-globalism, and nostalgia. And that really goes back to a show we did previously. We did a previous show on trends and, and human nature. And one thing that I pointed out at that time, which is so important for everybody to know, is the world vacillates constantly between conservatism and progressivism. And we're seeing this, this major shift um, back towards a conservative America, you know, that whole idea of, of make America great again, that um, isolationism, that ultra-conservatism. Um, it's, it's, and even on the extreme side when, with, with, with uh, liberals who wanted Bernie Sanders, who is a, an admitted socialist, you know. So we move into these, these very extremes um, in America. And what we have to look at is there's this populist movement in America, and the populist movement is really a pushback against globalization. Um, and globalization really is the change from the industrial age into this new technological age. And anytime you have a transition from age, like when we went from the agricultural age to the industrial age, then uh, at that time most of the, the population in America were farmers. And they said, well, what are we supposed to do as farmers? You know, how, how are we going to make this transition into urbanization and into industrialization, you're going to put us all out of work. And so there was a conservative movement at that time. And now we're moving from the industrial age of manufacturing um, and, and into this technological age where you're moving away again, further away from using muscle into intellect. And so, again, there's this pushback. Even though it's interesting, um, eventually people made the adjustment because only 4% of the U.S. population work on farms now where at that time maybe 80% of the, the population worked on farms when we had that transition, we have the same situation happening. And so anytime you have this, this change, because people are very nostalgic, we always talk about yesteryear and the good old days, uh, right? But when you think back, it was not fun working on a farm. Subsistence life was horrible. And the same thing, working in a factory or a coal mine is a horrible experience, yet people are longing to go back into the coal mine. They're longing to go back in the sweatshops. They're longing to go back in the factories um, because of this fear of the transition to this new age that we're moving into, which is technological, and uh, this, this fear of the global interconnectedness of the world. And so now you have, to, you have to have a certain level of respect for other cultures. You have to have a certain level of respect for other countries um, because we live in a global society. And you have to get outside of your neighborhood. You have to get outside of your, your city. You have to get outside of your state, even outside of your country, even if it's not physically, but at least virtually. You have to begin to expand yourself. And that's very difficult for people because people like consistency. People like what they know. People like what they're comfortable with, even if it's a bad situation. Mm. And so, so we're seeing this, this, you know, as I call it, the Western Spring, um, led by predominantly um, working-class, uh, middle-aged, low-educated, uh, low-skilled white males. And, you know, Donald Trump capitalized on that 
that pushback that they were having, and that's how he got into office. But he made certain promises, and in those promises and trying to keep those promises, we have to look at, you know, what it's going to do because it sounds good emotionally. The Trump promise, when you think of America first, it doesn't sound like a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. It, sound, it, it, it sounds like, yeah, we should be doing that. Like, we should be, you know, making sure that manufacturing is done here. We should make sure that there's no trade deficit, that there's equal trade everywhere. We should uh, be more isolationist and not be involved in the goings-on uh, around the globe. It sounds, emotionally, that sounds feasible. It sounds like it makes sense. But when we look at it from a, 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 the perspective of from economics, when we look at it from that perspective, uh, we realize how detrimental it actually is to all of us. And, and let me just put it in perspective. First thing he said was we need to be isolationist, right? We need to um, – he said, I want to be America's president. I don't want to be the president of the world. Well, we quickly see that that couldn't happen. One thing that we don't understand, because people are, we, we don't get why we meddle in the affairs of other places, if we live in a global economy – Commerce uh, can only happen where there's stability in certain areas. And when there's instability in certain areas, it disrupts the entire global economy. And so when we talk about the Middle East, of course, we, we're, we're an oil-dependent nation, just like everybody, every other large uh, country, industrialized country, is oil-dependent. If oil does not come out freely and move to the Straits of Hormuz freely and get to where it's going, then we grind to a halt because everything mm. we do is dependent on oil. And I'm not yes. just talking about driving our cars or heating our homes, but the, the lights that come on in your house, even though it's from a generator, that's from oil, right? And so we, we have to try to, uh, you know, create through diplomacy. And when we use military might, that's the leverage for diplomacy, and people don't understand that. Um, so even if you're a pacifist, you have to understand that there has to be stability everywhere. Now, if you may not agree with how we create stability, but – Stability has to happen. So you can't withdraw from the world. You can't withdraw from the world, again, because we're also, uh, we have this synergistic and interdependency on the world. No country can survive without the outside investment of other countries. There's not enough money in America to invest in America and keep it growing. That means money from other countries has to come in, too. And so you can't isolate yourself from outside investment. You can't, uh, you can't, create enough goods and services in your country affordably so you can't divorce yourself from importing goods. You can't divorce yourself from exporting goods. You can't divorce yourself from importing ideas from other places. And so isolationism as a a concept sounds good, but it does not work. So that whole thing is kind of crazy, the whole isolationist, and you see that falling apart you know, um, every single day. He also ran on this thing about he wants to um, overcome the trade deficit. And we hear that a lot of times. We say trade deficit. That sounds so unfair because he says, you know, the concept was that uh, there's no balance of trade. China, uh, we import a certain amount from China, but they don't import the same amount from us. Or the same thing with Mexico or same thing with Vietnam or the same thing with all these countries. But what people don't understand from an economics perspective, you will never have a balance of trade. And matter of fact, you don't want to have a balance of trade. If you have a balanced trade, that means that you're not wealthier. So we have to put this in perspective.
the cost, you want to be able to buy import cheaply. And so to import cheaply, you find the country that weakest currency who has the cheapest labor cost, the cheapest manufacturing cost, because that keeps the cost down for goods and services, right? So it's a trade-off. You can, you can have stuff made here, and we're going to talk about that in a second, or you can import at a lower cost to keep the cost down for consumers. You will never be able to trade equally with that country because they can't afford to buy from you. U.S. currency, we are the wealthiest country on the planet. So the U.S. Still. currency, yes, still, we are still the wealthiest mm-hmm. pl- country on the planet. So it is expensive for anybody to try to import from us this, mm. it is, because there's not a, an, an equivalency in the currency value because there's not an equivalency in our economies. We're, we're ex- extremely expensive to buy from, but we're a great person, we're a great country rather to sell to. And so you can't want to be the wealthiest country in, on the planet and not want and not expect to be the largest consumer. Who consumes the most? Those who are the wealthiest. So of course we're going to consume more naturally, and we're going to sell less naturally because that's you know uh, the trade-off of being the wealthiest country in the world. So to assume that there could be a, a, a anything other than a trade deficit, and that's just a funny term, deficit. It makes it seem so bad. A trade yeah. imbalance mm-hmm. is really what it is, right? Um, and we have to look at balance differently. So does balance mean an equal amount of goods through both sides, or is the balance I get inexpensive stuff from you, so I buy a lot. I sell expensive stuff, so you buy a little from me. I mean, that's still that, – that is the balance. Well, so we well, have to look at that I, I differently. Say this, you know, if we say the word balance, and the truth of the matter is, as we, we did a previous show and so on, we mentioned balance. It says not necessarily balance but a harmony, meaning we we look at this hypocritical thing about um, us exporting uh, less than we're importing. Oh, excuse me. We're uh, importing more than we're exporting. But, again, our own people here in America would not be able to spend the type of money that uh, uh, domestic uh, products are being produced at and sold on the open market when they can get a better buy from when we – when we have it run in from outside of our borders. So we get sometimes cars and um, electronics cheaper from abroad than we would get it if it was produced inside of our country. So there's a, it's, it's hypocrisy going on there. It's really a, a, a harmony, not balance. Exactly. Thank you. That, that's a, a, a good clarification, uh, which bring, brings me to the whole made in America thing. You know, it's, um, as you explained, people would not be able to afford the cost of uh, products because American workers are expensive. So if American mm-hmm. workers are expensive, the high cost of labor has to be absorbed somehow. Shareholders won't eat the cost of it. They'll just stop investing in that company. Business owners won't eat the cost of it. They'll just cut labor, meaning they'll lay people off, or they'll turn to automation. So if you don't want to lose jobs uh, or people aren't willing to eat the cost themselves and pay far more for goods and services, the whole Made in America um, idea doesn't make sense. And besides, it's what we, because we have this interconnectedness with the globe, um, all countries have different parts made in different parts of the world. 
Now, you can say it should be assembled in America, perhaps, because we do have that, right? Um, things can be assembled, but there's no way that it makes sense to have certain parts made in America when you can have them made far less expensively. So the Made in America, not only will it cost more, but it cuts down on on um, your ability to have choice. So when you don't have choice, you don't also don't have competition. When you don't have competition, it also reduces quality over time. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you don't. And it's, and it's monopoly. It means they can charge yes. higher prices for a good because there's less competition. Absolutely. And that's what would happen. You, you would find um, maybe one or two companies struggling, and then the bigger ones would just swallow them up. And then, like you said, if there's a monopoly, um, not only do you no longer have choice, but the prices are you can't control the, the cost of it. So we, we need competition. We need to have, you know, this – the uh, to buy into this whole global thing. Um, but again, like I said, emotionally, America first sound, sounds fantastic. Made in America sounds fantastic. But, you know, I remember uh, as a child in the 70s when a lot of stuff was still made in America, that, uh, everybody, I didn't have a color TV for a long time because the cost of a television was expensive. And mm-hmm. if we even looked at what it would cost for a television now, a 36-inch TV made today, uh, in America, would probably end up costing you a few thousand dollars if 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 we stop importing from other countries. You know, it's ridiculous. So um, I don't think that's what we where the direction that we would like to go. I don't think that's the direction that we should go, and I don't think it's ultimately the direction that Donald Trump's going to be able to go. So one thing we have to look at too: there are a lot of promises made in the campaign to the least sophisticated sector. Of America, who well, had an seems, emotion. No, go ahead. Go that's ahead. exactly where I was going. No, no, no. Go ahead, Haru. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no because that's he, that, that is exactly who he spoke to, the right. emotional core of yes. America. Yes. Because he's very smart in, in many ways. He knows the attention span is very short. <laughs> And perhaps, perhaps, I mean, I'm not an analyst, I'm not a pundit, but I'm saying perhaps he anticipated that the campaign promises will not be remembered. And he can just go, or maybe he didn't think it through. But I want to say welcome to all of our callers. We are very happy to see that switchboard so lit up as it is. But if you want to speak to Haru, you have to press the number one on your keypad we're very happy you're here, you're listening, but if you want to join this conversation, and I encourage you to, just press that number one and we'll bring you right in. Go ahead, Haru. All right. So um, I think you, you kind of um, talked about what I wanted to say. I don't believe that the vast majority of the campaign promises will be carried out, whether, whether it's because, as you say, maybe, maybe his attention span is short and he shifts. Um, or he just doesn't get the support, um, you know, politically to be able to pull it off or even globally to pull it off. Um, so a lot of things that were, were promised uh, that even I feared, there were things that I feared. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he, he's saying this. I don't think will come to fruition. So we have to also prepare for certain things, but we also have to be somewhat nimble um, and flexible because uh, he, he claims to be the unpredictable president. And so far, uh, that's pretty true. Hey, so, you know something? Yes. 
I was confused with one thing in terms of the approach of, about uh, globalization. Here's a man who's making money globally, and but he wants to talk about domestic um, buying and selling. Well, he wouldn't be a multi-millionaire, billionaire, whatever he is, uh, if he wasn't able to stretch off his hand and do uh, global business. So those two things are somewhat directly uh, opposing one another. And he has to stop talking his double talk if he wants a white America in particular to continue to support him. Uh, he's confusing the people because he himself may be confused. I just want to What's interesting, I don't know how confused he is, um, but there was this, this cognitive dissonance, right, where, you know, he was exposed about that a while ago. When, you know, they talked about his suits and his ties and his shirts and Everything that he manufactures is basically made outside of America, and that was exposed mm-hmm. during the campaign. And despite that, the desperation of of, of uh, what we call flyover America, middle America, the desperation was so great, and he talked in such a tone that was so recognizable and comforting to them that they were able to overlook that, despite the fact that he was exposed about that. So they overlooked that because – all they could hear was, I can go back in the coal mine or I can go back in the factory. You right. Know, uh, I can gonna, go back to the days when America was great. Right. And that's from an, and, and you got to look at it from their perspective. Um, for, for them, it was greater. Right. So when you had the opportunity to, you know, if you work in the coal mine, to just finish middle school and then know you have a job, no matter how horrific it is to be in a coal mine, no matter how dangerous it is to be in a coal mine, but to know you had a job for the rest of your life, that you were able to sustain um, a living, and whether even it's a meager living at that for coal miners, but you you were able to keep a roof over your family's head and feed them, um, you know they they long for for that, uh, which you know and in itself is a joke because even before. Uh, you know, we had jobs leaving America. The coal industry had been dying steadily for decades. It's yeah. just an obsolete, just an obsolete form of energy. It's, it's, there's no such thing as clean coal. And, you know, that was one of his things during the campaign. Clean coal, clean coal. There's no such thing as clean coal. Coal is, is filthy, and it's, a, it's highly pollutant. So, you know, you know, it's interesting because he had the coal miners on the other day, and we're going to get to these executive actions now. And, you know, he deregulated all these things, and it still didn't create any jobs. So let's get to that. Trump Trump signed 66 executive actions so far. And I think, you know, it's important to give a little bit, a little lesson on the different types of executive actions. So there's technically there's three types of, of executive actions, and each have has a different type of authority, each has a different type of effect, um, and each even has a different level of uh, prestige. So executive orders, which, which is the one that we hear about the most, they're, they're the ones that are assigned a number. They're published in the Federal Register. Um, they're, like, they're, they're almost equivalent to, pretty much equivalent to laws passed by Congress. Um, and so uh, Trump has signed, I think, 26, about 26, 24 to 26 uh, executive orders so far. And then we have presidential memoranda, which 
they don't have to be published to a number, even though they can be. And they usually just delegate like tasks that Congress has already assigned the president to members of the executive branch. So he signed 22 of those. And then finally we have proclamations, which most of us are familiar with, like um, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So <laughs> proclamations, <laughs> proclamations have, have a lot of weight, uh, but uh, most are like ceremonial observances or federal holidays uh, mm-hmm. or awareness months or things like that. And Trump has signed or he's issued 20 proclamations so far. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is kind of highlight some of the, the, the bigger ones that affect the economy. And I'm going to talk about the good and the bad. Um, okay, but I'm going to go a little. Yes. So is this unusual, the numbers that you've mentioned in, in, in the time the num- that he's been in office? Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So if you wanted to do a comparison, uh, now he, he hasn't signed the most overall. I think FDR has that one by far. But if we do like a comparison between, say, um, him and Obama, uh, let's see, I think he's, Obama signed like 377, I think, in, in, the, in the eight years that he was uh, president. And let's see, I'm just trying to figure out how many. I have this written down somewhere too. You know, I figured somebody was going to ask this question. I just got to find <laughs> through my go through my notes really quickly. Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, I was just doing that. a quick search, and uh, it, it doesn't come up with the numbers like that. Well, yeah, it's it's it it exists because I, I actually did write that down because that's important. I know somebody somebody was going to ask it. Yeah, suffice it to say, he, he is in the office for less than 100 days, and he has signed uh, a great deal of these, uh, uh, these, these things that's going to affect our lives for the next four years or more. And the problem is, is that he has not shown the American people that he does his due diligence before he opens his mouth or he acts. And so we are curious to see what some of these uh, – these things that he signed, how they will affect the economy, because all of us are holding our breath trying to figure out just how bad off it's going to be. I don't think too many of us are really saying how good it's going to be, but perhaps we're going to find some good in some of these, these signings that he, he's uh, executed. Well, I think that we, we have to find the good, because we can't, we can't just sit and fall apart for the next four years. Right. right. So it's, sometimes it's, it's easy to see the the uh, Obama Barack Obama by the way in two terms had 277 executive orders um, in two terms so in eight years 277 was uh, the number of Barack Obama signed so when we look at Trump you know the pace that he's on right um, executive orders he's already signed like I said 20 24 in 89 days um, that's a lot but like I said FDR signed 3,700 and during his tenure, but, you know, that was during the, the coming out of the, um, the great depression. So, you know, when you look at the number, it's, it's pretty high. Mm. Okay. But, so let's like talk said, about we, those. We um... have to find, we, we have to find some, some, some good in here. 
Um, and it's not that there's good in what he's doing. And so let me rephrase that. I don't find anything good in what he's doing. I'm looking at what he's doing and saying, okay, how could this negatively impact me? And what could I do to not only uh, avert that, but also find a way to capitalize on what he's doing and profit? Because, it, you know, when, when he's creating the executive orders, it, there's, two, there's always two sides of this. So let, let's just talk about the first one, uh, one of the first ones he signed, which was on January 30th. He signed an executive order reducing regulations. And this is like, one of the, to me, one of the craziest things I've ever heard. So the order required any federal agency that proposes a new regulation to identify two existing ones to eliminate. Let me say, I think you can say that again. What? <laughs> Any, any federal agency that proposes a new regulation must identify two existing ones to eliminate. So let's just talk about the purpose of regulation itself. Regulation, regulations are created to protect people and environments, right? And so there's this dichotomous relationship between the interests of big corporations on one side and people in the environment on the other side. See, you can't have, you can't, unfortunately, there's no way to help both of them because a, corpor- a corporation, their goal is to make as much uh, profit as possible. And then so in, in doing so, they, they tend to exploit people and damage environments. And so you create regulations to protect people and to protect environments, but at the same time, it hurts the profits of corporations. That's just the way it is. So if regulations are imposed by governments to protect people in the environment from being exploited or otherwise harmed by these unscrupulous corporations, the order could undo regulations that were put in place to protect natural resources, to protect consumers, as well as American workers. So he ran on this whole American workers thing, but you're deregulating industries so that American workers are harmed Consumer protection will, will fall apart, and you'll destroy the environment. So that's the negative. Of course, that, most people will see that as a negative. The upside, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, is you can start a business in a business-friendly environment right now with few restrictions allowing you to, to, to nearly uh, do just about anything and get unlimited profit potential. So – the negative side of it is, you know, the loss of, of protections that – because labor unions pretty much are gone. I don't know if people realize that. That's a thing of the past. All the, all the reasons that labor unions came into existence, all the reasons that uh, governments impose regulation, all those things are going to be gone. And anytime you find a problem that says there has to be a regulation for it, He's saying, well, okay, we'll, we'll accept that, but now you've got to get rid of two that existed already, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So mm. that's a big thing. That's deregulation. Um, again, that's going to affect consumers, workers, environment, your health, everything. It's going to affect all of that. Um, one of the big things he did was rene- try to renegotiate trade agreements, and I think that's falling apart now, too, as we speak. But on his, in his fourth day in office, Trump signed an executive order formally, formally withdrawing the U.S. from TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. 
Hmm. Now, one of the things, it was interesting to me that he did that, and well, his justification for doing it, because he he talked about China uh, in the trade deficit and how they're currency manipulators, and he's pulling out of TPP, but China was not a part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and most people don't know that. The, the reason that, the, that TPP was actually crafted by the Obama administration was to have a control of, of economic resources and trade in Asia so that China, who was rising in influence, didn't dominate that region. So if he pulls out, here's the danger, if the United States pulls out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, then all those countries will be looking for a new agreement and possibly with China's rising influence, China having an expanded role and influence in determining the, the you know, uh, policies, trade policies, and economic policy that comes out of that region. So it actually puts us in a, a, a worse position being out of TPP than we had being in TPP. So to me... Um, that's problematic. Now, here's a good thing, right? So China is definitely poised to expand its influence in the region. There's no doubt about that um, because nature doesn't like a vacuum. So if the U.S. Had a, a, had a hand in controlling trade policy in that region and we pulled out and all those little countries are looking for leadership and they're looking for guidance and they're looking for somebody to create a policy of stability, China is going to step in there without a doubt. So investing in mutual funds and things of that nature that support Chinese and other Asian companies could possibly be a good move right now. Um, but again, we have to, I don't know what his new role is going to be since he's trying to buddy up with China uh, because they need China to try to uh, influence North Korea. We might end up in some type of other trade partnership um, that's probably way worse than where we were because now leverage has swung to the other side. Mm-hmm. So, the le- yeah, leverage. Yeah, and that's all. And, and that's what negotiations about. That's what people don't get. To, it's all about leverage. And one of the, the things that I'm realizing is that the guy, the art of the deal master, the the great negotiator, is giving away all the leverage that we have and really setting us up for for disaster. So it's interesting to me that. You know, he he ran on being this great negotiator, and he hasn't negotiated anything successfully yet. One of the other Hmm. things that uh, he did was he signed in order to renegotiate NAFTA. Uh, For those who don't know, NAFTA is the North American Free Trade Agreement. And, you know, NAFTA was signed in 1993, I believe. And what it did was it created free trade between Canada, United States, Mexico, United States, and what it did was it took away a lot of the tariffs to create a free flow of trade, which actually benefited the U.S. greatly. Um, There's so many actually created jobs. It didn't. We didn't lose jobs with NAFTA, which was one of the things that that he talked about. And NAFTA quadrupled trade to 1.15 trillion dollars as of 2015. Um, mm-hmm. It increased U.S. growth by a half percent annually from the time it was created. It created 5 million U.S. jobs, including 800,000 manufacturing positions that didn't exist before. 
Canada and Mexico invested $240.2 billion in the United States, while U.S. companies invested $452 billion in those countries. But again, that's the harmony, as Brother James said. That's the harmony of it. Um, the United States imports $294.7 billion worth of goods from Mexico, um, and that's as much as it imports from China. So it doesn't make sense to me why you would threaten that relationship. So any trade change is going to threaten the flow and the price of, of the imports from those places. That includes oil. As we, don't, we forget we get a lot of oil from Mexico. That includes manufactured products like electronics, like we talked about earlier. But we forget fruits, vegetables, coffee, cotton. It's going to affect the cost of all those things if we suddenly, you know, want to put tariffs on anything imported from Mexico. That's ridiculous. You're going to cost that that um, eight hundred thousand manufacturing jobs that that it created. You're going to lose that. The five million jobs overall that are dependent on NAFTA. You're going to lose that. What would probably happen? Go ahead. No, go ahead. I don't want you to lose your thought. Go ahead. What will probably happen is that Mexico and Canada will will reinstate the bilateral trade agreements that we had before, which weren't really that great. And so I don't know. The U.S. has this wants to have, or Trump wants to have a a, a different relationship with Canada, our, our neighbors to the north, than Mexico, our neighbors to the south, and create you know, this separate agreement as opposed to seeing it as one unified thing. So I you want to chime in there. So I wanted to read a quote from um, WhiteHouse.gov on, on NAFTA that um, um, Trump said today at 12, 13 p.m. He says, um, of course I lost it just as I was going to say because he speaks just to how he made, you know, he said he, in the beginning of it, he said he was going back on his campaign trail and he was seeing all the factories shut down and shutters that he wanted to bring it back. He says, um, and one steel mill after another has been shut down, abandoned and closed, and we're going to reverse that. He says our countries have made a living taking advantage of the United States in so many ways. Then skip a few uh, paragraphs down. He says, since the day I entered office, I have followed through on that pledge. Big League, beginning with our withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that would have been a catastrophe for our businesses and our workers. I am very proud of that withdrawal. Some people say, oh, gee, I wish you didn't do that. But the smart people say, thank you, thank you, thank you. That would have been another NAFTA disaster. And NAFTA, believe me, was a disaster and continues to be a disaster for our country. WhiteHouse.gov, that's, his, that's what he said yeah. today. That's frightening uh, that he's still see, hanging on to that. Yeah, it, it, you know, what, what um, befuddles me as, uh, as well, we're going to talk about um, really causing a hostile trading env- uh, environment between our neighbors to the south, per se, Mexico, and any of our um, brothers and sisters down in the, uh, Central America. And... Then you turn around and you have a policy that deals with um, kicking out all the uh, illegally entered person, uh, persons coming from the south of our border who are actually out here working and doing jobs that most of yeah. us don't want to do. And right. it just seems to me that he's actually um, creating an environment of cold war with someone who has not declared war on these countries to the south of our border. 
this might backfire on us. Oh, it's definitely going to backfire. Um, and, and so with the, the crazy thing is, even if you eliminated NAFTA, it doesn't mean that those jobs will come back to America, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, you know, that he ran on that and people bought into this idea that 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 Mexico was the problem. Like you said, no, nobody wants to be a migrant worker who lives in America now. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, you couldn't afford to. The very... The, the the very fact that they live in Mexico and come here and work and can go back to Mexico is the only reason that they can survive off, off the meager wages that are paid. And unless people want to pay a whole lot more for the fruits and vegetables that they do get, you know, it doesn't, again, doesn't make sense. American workers can't survive on it, don't want those jobs, didn't want them a long time ago. Um, you know, it, and it's, it's the same thing, you know, when we had, when, 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 African Americans came up from from down south when we first came out of uh I don't want to say uh cuz we we were we were the migrant workers first mm-hmm. you know um until until we got ourselves in a position where we didn't have to take those jobs we don't want those jobs either so it's not even like they took the jobs from African Americans we were able to to move to urban centers and get different types of jobs we didn't want it nobody wants those jobs so it's ridiculous to me, when you talk about let's eliminate that because they're they're a threat to U.S. workers, but nobody wants those jobs anyway. Exactly. I mean, and then if you talk about um, businesses that are doing um, businesses based here that are doing business in um, countries such as India, you know, how does that affect that? I mean, when we started our company Moon 107, we was able to have garments made in India at a very reasonable rate that we could not right, have so done that here. Right, so if you start putting tariffs on everything, you know that that's ridiculous. You're going to tax, you're effectively putting a tax, a huge tax on anything that's purchased outside of America. So we have to also look at the quality of life of the average person, right? Most people today, despite how how wages have not increased um, greatly over the years, still can boast of having a far better life than their parents had and their grandparents had before them and their great-grandparents before them. Each generation has been able to create a better lifestyle up to this point, um, despite, like, you know, uh, the economy not being the greatest. So, again, it doesn't make sense. And and a lot of it has to do with the, the cost of keeping goods and services low because of globalization. So, Haru, we have a caller on the line, and I believe this caller is ready to weigh in because that number one has been pressed. Welcome to the Keys 107. Can you all hear me? Very clearly. Hello. Oh, hi. This is Aisha. How are you? Aisha, I thought I recognized that number. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) One of the things that I have wanted to say was – I was watching on uh, uh, Rachel and Elizabeth, um, I forgot her name. She's a senator, Elizabeth. Warren. Anyway, Warren. Elizabeth she Warren, says, yes. Elizabeth Warren. And what she said was, don't, don't watch what he says, watch what he does. And I've always been, I've been doing that anyway. I've been watching to see what it is that he actually does, because I know that he's a liar and he talks rhetoric. 
So I, the first thing that I noticed that he did was to put in uh, billionaires and Goldman Sachs former CEOs in place, and also uh, Rex Tillerson, who was an executive for Exxon for all of his life. That was the only job he had was as an Exxon. Um, and I and I realized the major mega deals that are made in Russia around oil. So I knew that this country was going to be sold out. The workers and the and the poor folks were going to be sold out once he did that. The other thing that I wanted to mention was that I had predicted this many years ago, but when the country is in trouble historically, when the Trump country is in trouble financially and, you know, economically, financially, the first thing that people, European people of descent tend to do is blame people of color. And... And that's the first reaction that they have, and that's exactly what uh, Donald Trump and his Republican team did. They they went on that historical fact, and they frightened people with the thought that it's people of color, it's those people that are taking your jobs, it's because of those people that you are being economically denied. And that takes the thought away from what's really going on. That is about big business and corporations. I do think that eventually people are going to realize that we're all being duped in a certain kind of way, and unfortunately there will be some sort of a revolt and a revolution, and things are going to change. But I see that, you know, up the road. But in the meantime, I wanted to ask a question for college students, Haru, who are in college, what kind of global careers or business ideas should they be looking at I don't know if you have that on your list yeah. that you're going to get to. Well, well no, that's a great question. Um, mm-hmm. And because one of the things I just mentioned right before you, you, you came on was that each successive generation has done better than the previous generation, and this next generation of college kids will be the first generation that will probably not be better off than their parents. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the things that we, we, they have to look at um, well, we know that STEM, right, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math are, are, the, are the subject areas where the, the new world is creating jobs. And so there are actually millions of unfilled jobs in America. And one of the reasons that uh, – because one of the executive orders that, that Trump signed recently would hire America first. I don't know if you, you heard that one. Uh, we just signed that the other day. Um, is a problem because these new tech industries say we we can't find qualified American workers. One hmm. of the, the issues, the, one of the issues that we have as Americans, what people of color, you know, have bought into it as well. We take our brightest and our best, and we funnel them into just a handful of professions that we think have prestige. And so we, if our kids are bright, we say you should be a doctor or you should be a lawyer. We don't need any more doctors or lawyers. So our best and brightest are not taking on those areas that, although are necessary, don't have the, the prestige. Scientists, when somebody says, I'm a scientist, it doesn't hold the same prestige as saying you're a doctor. Um, when you say you're an engineer, it doesn't hold the same prestige as saying you're a lawyer. However, right now, the amount of income that can be made because there are so few Good ones, and and when we look at what what Google and 
Facebook and all these big companies do, what they do, one thing people don't understand is uh, when these small companies come out, when these young entrepreneurs who are engineers and scientists and they come up with these new uh, technological innovations, they buy them. And they don't buy them because the, the product is good. They, they buy them because they want the minds of the people who did it. And so they're buying these companies to get all their engineers. So they end up having a monopoly on the best engineers and scientists in the world. And so if we want to really encourage our kids to be super successful, we need to push them into those areas. Um, that's number one. Number two is we, if we're in a global society, then we need to push our kids to start thinking globally and not think locally. There are emerging countries around the world who are desperate for skilled labor. And when I say desperate, I mean they don't – and those are areas you don't have to even be in STEM. They need teachers. They need civil engineers. They need waste management experts. They need people who have expertise in security and, and energy. They need so many different experts. And we have to encourage them to, be, to, to take those jobs globally because – Transportation is so inexpensive and quick now. They can be there for a short amount of time and fly home. You're not going to lose the support system. Our communications is so cheap now. You can communicate FaceTime. You can be on a cell phone in real time with, with your support system all day, every day. So you're not going to lose that. And so we, they can't be afraid of, of, you know, where the jobs are, which is, again, in the STEM technology, uh, in technology for STEM and they can't be afraid to go outside of the, the United States borders and, and get big money. I have one of my students that was, uh, took my financial class uh, about two years ago, and he went straight to China. And I, he just sent me a message. He said, I bet you wonder why I'm still in China, because he's living it up in China. He's a black man who's like a superhero in China. He's, he just sent me a video. He's doing commercials now. He went there to, be a, to, to teach English to Chinese students. He didn't speak a lick of Chinese, but they wanted, his, they wanted him to teach English because they just wanted to teach it. They had an interpreter to work with him to teach English, and now he's doing everything there. He's like a megastar. And so we can't be afraid to, to tell our kids to go out into the world and don't be afraid of those subjects um, because they're difficult and challenging. So, Haru, what you're saying is that I want to talk about that college situation Mm -hmm. because what you're saying is this generation, when they graduate, there will be no jobs for them, so they and they will not be able to pay their student loans off, so they will have to go global. They would have to go overseas to make money. Is that what we're looking at four or five years down the line? I'm saying there'll be there'll be jobs if they take the right majors, but. We can't keep encouraging them to, to take humanities or African studies and, and, and uh, you know, all these things that aren't going to get them a job. Those things are great to me as electives. Mm-hmm. I think every student should take that stuff. However, if you're talking about preparing yourself for a career, you know, we, we, we tell them doctors, lawyers, teacher. That's it. Doctors, lawyers, teacher may be um, counselor, right? We, but we don't encourage to, to, to go into the things that have big money. And so there are jobs in America. The reason that we have to go to India and get jobs, uh, get engineers and scientists, is because we're not producing them here. The reason we have to, to go to China and get them is because we're not producing them here. 
um, American companies would love to hire American kids. Matter of fact, they try to create um, now, even in the high school level, partnerships with, with colleges right? Part, and, and, and partnerships with corporations um, and so that they can just funnel them from high school to college into, you know, um, uh, apprentice-type programs, internship programs. But the kids aren't going. The kids don't want it because mm-hmm. they haven't been encouraged to do it from the time they were young. Well, that's what I was going to say, Haru. It really starts in elementary school when, you know, yeah. I mean, coming from a teacher's point of view, and we don't want, and I want to digress because we have a lot more to cover, but when you're telling children from first grade, second grade, that something's wrong with them, what's wrong with you, and you're giving them all, all this negative reinforcement and you're not enforcing, enforcing positive reinforcement and guiding them towards the sciences and towards the math, you make them feel inferior and non-competitive, and they may, and eventually, by the time they're in the upper grades, they're zest for learning has already been appreciated and they're not even looking towards that yeah we have to over i mean again we digress a little bit but we have to overhaul the whole educational system even how they're educated right the world doesn't work the same way you can't expect them to sit in a classroom with rows and somebody stand in front of the room and lecture and write things on a board anymore they grew up with with technology they grew up with with um ipads and, and laptops they grew up collaborating with their friends, and, and that's the way business is being done. So the, the educational system is woefully inadequate in preparing them to even enter the business world. So, you know, the, the, the whole system has to be revamped. Why is it that we, we don't have global partnerships with educators on the other side of the world? Why is it that we don't have Chinese teachers communicating with, with kids in the classroom in, in New York? Why, you know what I mean? So the whole, because that's the way business is done now. And so if you, want, if you really want to prepare people for the technological world, then you have to have a technologically advanced education. Mm-hmm. Um, but you That's don't see awesome. that very often. We, we, we still so, have an industrial age education. Um, caller 347-697, you wanted to ask another question before we go to commercial yes, break? I did, I did. Um, yes, can you hear me? Um, you sound a little muffled and some some uh, chatter in your background. Oh, hold on. Because I'm kind of on. Uh, let me just see if I have it on. You cannot watch right. Scandal and listen to the no, I'm not watching Scandal. No, no, no. I'm okay. not watching Scandal. I'm, at, I'm actually at work. <laughs> okay. No, my other question was um, about um, investing in, in, in the African um uh, in different stable countries in the African continent? Um, is that mm-hmm. like a viable means or something that we should be thinking about? Because I've noticed that, you know, there's a lot of up-and-coming countries in Africa that are stable, and I was wondering about investing business-wise or even in the market in these countries. Is that something viable? Is that something we should be thinking about? Um, you can always think about it. I, I've, I've done business in Africa, and I tell you, the thing is you, you must know that the rules are different. Um, mm-hmm. As long as you understand that the rules are different and your the level of protection is different, then as long as you go into it with open eyes and I say, yeah, go for it. Um, you know, certain countries are, as you said, more stable than others. But what you want to look at is how the, the, the judicial system works. It's not so much the economic system, but your economic system has to be supported by your judicial system, meaning that gotcha. do they have a means of contract enforcement, right? And um, mm-hmm. do they have a, a, a means of, of settling disputes 
you know, other than if I pay the court system, then I win. Or if I'm the cousin of so-and-so, do I win? So you have to understand that. And, you know, business in Africa is different, too. It's it's primarily based on nepotism, right? So if if you're not a bloodline family, then you need to create a relationship as though you are family, and then things work a lot smoother. And you have to understand that um, it's a – in most places in Africa, there's a system where everybody gets paid, meaning that you got to pay people up and down the line to get what you want, because uh, it's a, it's a, you know, primarily, uh, you know, system where you got to mm-hmm. pay graft, you know. Gotcha. So what if you understand that, then go for it, you know. Real, not only in Africa, but like real estate investments, like if it. Is it, I'm just trying to think of all kinds of options. Right, that's what I'm saying. Even a real estate investor, I'll give you an example. I, I've done business. I had a, uh, uh, for many years, I had a store in Gambia, West Africa, which is to me mm-hmm. one of the easiest places to do business. You know, um, people are laid back, you know, they speak English, so it's easy to get around. There was a, 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 a friend of mine who went and he tried to buy real estate and he didn't understand that there's different rules for buying real estate. So he, he thought he could do a transaction with the person who was sitting on the land and he signed a contract and there was a big dispute because he didn't get clearance from the local chief. The chief has to approve everything. And he said, well, I have a contract. He said, a contract means nothing here. Mm. So he didn't even have a legal recall. He couldn't take it to a court because he didn't. So there's, like I'm saying, there's different local rules depending on where you're at that you have to understand. It's not, you know, we have this idea that everywhere works like America. America actually has one of the absolute best systems in the world set up to do business and to have your business protected um, legally. We have more lawsuits in America by far than any other place in the world. So, you know, our judicial system backs up our our economic system. So it's feasible, so you should definitely go and travel and spend time in these areas and make, make, make alliances. Yes, before you do anything. And make sure they're real alliances because I know people who got caught like that too, you know. Right. Um, but once you have the right connections, then things could go, you know, can go very smoothly for you. Yeah, all right. So we just want to make sure that you don't buy into the email that comes to you and, and, and <laughs> <laughs> hold that as credible. Um, I'm Rafika, the, the co-host of the Keys 107 Network. You are tuned in live with our financial guru and business consultant Haroon Niket and our lovely caller Aisha who has asked some very pertinent questions. We're going to go for break and when we come back Haroon is going to talk about the Keystone XL and the Dakota Access Pipeline. As you know we did the show with Queen Yanazada when the, um, they were protecting the water. So we are keen on this conversation and anxious to get back but we got to just take care of this. The flux are calling us. The Keys 107 will be right back. The first are a family of clouds up in the sky. Fluff, presents the alphabet, is available on Amazon.com and on Kindle. So get your copy today. For more information, visit them online, www.thefluffamily.com. Now, now, now. 
Back to the Keys 107 with your host, Wafika and Brother Jay. Yeah, so uh, Haru, we had a person that uh, popped into the inbox and they did it so fast that one way I didn't get the name, but the question pretty much was, I thought the Dakota Access Pipeline was 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 stopped. And I'm like, no. Obama stopped it. No, Obama stopped it. And then on January 24th, Trump signed an order allowing the construction of the Keystone, XL, and Dakota Access Pipeline. So mm. that was stopped under Obama, and then on January 24th, Trump signed the order allowing it to happen. So you just look at that. You know, people don't even, even know what it is. It's about being able to ship high-grade Canadian crude oil from Canada to refineries in the Gulf where the oil companies can then ship that oil to Latin America. So we have to look at, at the cost of that. So this reduction of domestic supply will raise and this is going to hurt everybody, will raise U.S. oil and gas prices. So completion of the entire pipeline, you know, will raise mm. the pump, price at the pump probably in the Midwest, in the Rocky Mountains, by 10 to 20 cents a gallon. So right now, a lot of the oil being produced in Canada and North Dakota has trouble reaching the refineries and the terminals in the Gulf because it's so far. So we talk about the Gulf region, we're talking about down in Texas. It's hard to get oil right now from up in that region. So since that that supply has a hard time, it can't be sold abroad, it reduces the competition for the Midwest, right? So the Midwest refineries actually pay lower prices to get it now. Given the Canadian oil access to the Gulf means that the, the glut in the Midwest will disappear, making it more expensive based on basic supply and demand. So, so that's bad. Aside from the whole pollution aspect of it, which we know is horrible. So what's the flip side of that? How do you capitalize on that? Well, most people lost a significant amount of money investing in oil. When the prices start going up, investing in oil might be a good idea, um, or really soon when the pipeline is near completion. Um, And also, U.S. steel is also supposed to be used whenever possible to build the pipes, which, you know, uh, when you deal in commodities, um, you could make some money in steel stocks as well. So bad at the pump, bad for the environment, again, driving up prices. However, the opportunity to invest in, in, in oil and the opportunity to invest in U.S. steel could be possibilities where um, we can find a silver lining somewhere in there. Well, I have to just digress and go back into the history of this country. You know, once again, uh, we are living in a historic um uh, action against the people in their homeland and their sacred land um, for the benefit of my brain was going too fast for the best for the benefit of capitalism and I guess there's nothing we can do at this point it's done I know that they've already started moving forward. And, and I, I just want to make that statement because this is a, a very important component for those who can, those who are concerned and those who are aware that this happened on our watch. Yes. And, and, and to people's credit, people protested vigorously. Yes. And Obama heard people and responded appropriately. 
Trump says in his mind that because he wants it and people elected him, then that voice overshadows anybody who was for Obama and who was protesting before. You know, and, you know, one of the things you said uh, to benefit capitalism, and, and I say not to benefit capitalism itself because this doesn't benefit capitalism because people are being hurt all over the place in, in terms of the capitalism. It benefits a few. And, mm-hmm. there, and, and, Trump, and one thing we have to understand, Trump has never been accepted by the wealthy elite. They always mm-hmm. looked down upon him and frowned upon him. He was never friends with Wall Street before. He was never accepted. He started Mar-a-Lago because he wasn't accepted in the other country clubs. And this is his entry into that wealthy elite. And he's doing everything he can to buddy-buddy up with them and play like he's always been a part of that. And so it's not benefiting capitalism as a whole. It's benefiting that, that tiny group of power brokers who are at the top, who now he's trying to uh, make an alliance with. You know, so it's, it's, it's amazing to me how he's willing to sacrifice, you know, um, the environment. He's willing to, to sacrifice so many people and sacrifice the, sacrifice the betterment of people, you know, just for his, for his own ends. You know, and, that's just, that's just, and for me, I think it's, it's totally personal with him. I don't even think mm-hmm. it has to do with benefiting the other wealthy elite. I think it's totally <laughs> personal. I think he's the, he's the biggest egomaniac and and sociopath to ever take the office. But anyway, so you know what, um, Haru, I I get what what the undercurrent and and I think all of us who are listening in that there is it's a dual edge with him. And it's very difficult yes. to talk about the the concrete business and the concrete decisions, and like you said, the sixty six um, executive actions, without speaking about the other part because it's, it's they are just so tightly intertwined. Mm-hmm. So we should I move think, on. You, Go ahead. Yeah, I think I think it's important also to I think one of the things that Hope was trying to to drive in is that. You know, even through adversity and in difficult situations, we still have to have a strategy. We cannot um, succumb to the emotion and the fear of it all and not have some economic strategies in place uh, that will get us through, you know. So, unfortunately, you know, with the Dakota Pipeline, and and by the way, um, I'm involved in somewhat with that, but they... um, they are still, the water warriors are still out there. They still need our support. They're still, uh, they're still trying to lobby and do what they can uh, to protect the waters. So even thank you for um, that particular. Yeah. Thank you for, for correctly naming them because that name would not come to me for anything, the water warriors. Yes. They're still out there. They're still keeping an eye. They're still trying to do whatever they can to uh, protect the water and to have clean water for our future. But in the meantime, strategically, as a people, if we can, you know, drop some money here and there to make some money, it's not a bad thing. It's making right. taking lemon and lemons and making lemonade, as my girl. Yeah, 
Well, she didn't say it first, but you know. Yeah, I got it. So I think that's I think if I'm correct, I think that's the point, you know, of exactly. this of this is that, you know, we, we have to be strategic and we have to you know, we cannot give in to fear and, and emotion as much as possible. Yes, absolutely. So I think that would be a good segue into talking about the removal of the discount for Federal Housing Administration mortgages yeah. for low-income homebuyers. Yeah, that's scary. Mm. Um, all right, so what people don't know, FHA, people commonly know it as FHA, which is the Federal Housing Administration, they back mortgages for home buyers with less than perfect uh, credit scores, um, allowing them to put a small down payment down um, and they and they actually do this for about one in five uh, mortgages. So it's a it's a large. You're talking about twenty percent of mortgages are backed by uh, FHA loans, and you know again it allows that to happen. President Trump signed an order to remove a discount on federal on FHA mortgages for low income buyers, which is crazy. Um, why? I mean, I mean, does, uh, is he required to give a rationale for for this? Um, I mean, I, I'm just throwing that out there yeah. because I don't, I, I can't even, I can't even see like people sitting in front of him and listening to this. Well, I, I will tell you that it will uh, affect the uh, the real estate market, and yes. because people are not going to be able to um, jump over that hurdle of putting that large down payment down. Yep. There are going to be an overwhelming amount of people looking for rentable, rent, uh, rental, rentable apartments and homes. So you change the dynamics of the uh, real estate market because the sale, sales of home kind of dictates the economy, you know. Um, and if you see sales, home sales are down, normally the economy is down. So I don't know if this is going to be a positive action as well. Um. Okay, so let's let's look at it. So higher mortgage prices might lessen the pool of available buyers, right? Therefore, mm-hmm. it'll stall it'll stall the increase in in home prices because mm-hmm. it'll create a sudden glut, right? So if you're talking about twenty percent of mortgages are FHA, and and a lot of those twenty percent rely on on that discount, that means a lot of those will be out. It's good and bad. So if you create a glut, it stalls prices, but it becomes more of a buyer's market than it does a seller's market, but that's offset by the lack of available buyers. So some people who have the cash to do it um, could could find better deals in this market uh, if that happens. The flip side of it is sellers will lose out because it will reduce the cost because there will be this sudden glut. So if you're on the selling side, bad. If you're on the buying side um, and, and you can afford it, then it's good. If you're on the buying side and you couldn't quite afford it and relied on that, then it's bad. But the reasoning why, I don't know. Mm. Well, one of the things he just, yeah. And how does this um, impact young people? Young people um, uh, who are. That's bad. Yes, because housing prices are already astronomical. And as we said earlier, you know, um, incomes are not necessarily going up. This will mean that young people will be in your house longer. <laughs> <laughs> well, well the rule sums it up. <laughs> I already predicted. I already predicted that people look at me like oh, wait, I already said that the truth is going to be, you know, uh, uh, multiple uh, families living in two, three bedroom apartments, and you're going to have 
you know, you could have mothers, grandmothers, aunts, nephews, living in one place. And those who can work will work, and the others who can't will be keen to take their kids. Aisha, you're coming in a little broken up. Oh, a little fuzzy there, up. yeah. So I think, um, I, but I think as as Haru is laying out these these things, as you said, Aisha, it's not to get fearful. It's just to sort of look at it from both sides. So if we know right. that we have a three to yeah. four to five year projection, then we can better prepare ourselves, and then we're not, you know, we're not getting crazy, and perhaps we don't, you know, find ourselves, you know, in in a very bad situation. Well, let right. me just say this. What what you can see as a positive, and it's only for a select few, those who have the financial wherewithal to invest in homes and buy up multiple homes because they can buy them cash or they have the credit lines to do such, they can increase their inventory. And then there's going to be an enormous increase of folks looking to rent homes. So if you're buying homes as an investor to rent them out, you you uh, you will be in a stronger position, but not everybody's in that position where they can buy multiple homes to rent out. So if you're an investor, this might be a good time to to seek out properties and and get the best buy for your bang for your buck, and then find renters to keep you rich and happy. So we're coming close to the we're coming close to the hour. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Have you looked into uh, the real estate in Detroit? Yes, um, I have. I have. I, I, I tend to I take trips to Detroit regularly. There are parts of Detroit that are coming back. If you look close to downtown Detroit, you'll see that there is a lot of building going on um, and a lot of gentrification, uh, believe it or not, going on in Detroit. But the outer areas um, uh, still have not really come back strong at all. So there there are opportunities, and the best opportunities, if you can get them, as close to the downtown area, I believe. Thank you. So, Haru, in, in light of time, um, there are some more points that you wanted to cover, but I'm going to ask you if we could just jump into the tax plan. Sure. Uh, and then if we have more time, we can um, definitely go back to uh, rewriting the regulations. But tax well, plan well, how is about this? very this, interesting. This, this, the tax plan is interesting, but the tax plan probably won't be able to be pulled off because it was heavily dependent on repealing uh, Obamacare. And mm. since he couldn't repeal Obamacare and it was heavily dependent on it, he, uh, what he proposed probably won't happen. But let's talk about what he proposed as a candidate. So if we assume it doesn't change, um, we know by far it will benefit the wealthy far more than the middle class or, or the, the working class. Um, the poorest fifth of the population will receive a tax break of 0.6%, which is really nothing. Um, but it improves on each, each, each income level. So those in the top fifth will get a 3.2% tax break. The top 1% will get a 6.5% tax break, uh, which is crazy, while the, the – very top, the 0.1% will get a 7.3% tax rate cut. So we're talking about a small saving on the bottom, but a huge saving for the top. The second, his tax plan would increase the debt, um, and that's because the most wealthy contribute the lion's share to the total tax revenue, 
but they're going to get a break. So Trump says he would offset the tax cuts by eliminating the loopholes, but he clearly is not specific as to what loopholes he's referring to. Um, his plan will increase the federal deficit by about 10 to $12 trillion, according to the, the Tax Foundation and Tax Policy Center. It's going to hurt the poor since it caps deductions ab- above $200,000. The very wealthy, um, are, again, are going to come out smelling like roses. It hurts parents or school-aged children because they lose a personal exemption for each child and don't qualify for the child care expense deduction. That means almost 10 million parents will see a tax increase. Mm. So Trump is basically betting on the trickle-down economics you know, theory, and that theory advocates that giving tax cuts to businesses, because one thing he wants to do with businesses is corporations, is create a flat 15% tax rate. Right now, it's 15% for $50,000 net or less, and then there's a gradual increase up to, uh, I think it's 39%. He wants to make it a flat 15% no matter how much you make. So companies like Amazon and Google and, and Yahoo, they'll only pay 15% tax. That has never, ever, ever worked. So trickle-down economics um, is a theory that if you give tax breaks to businesses on the top, it'll create jobs on the bottom. It doesn't create jobs on the bottom, never has, it won't do it. And so basically it won't boost the economy the way he promised. Everybody on the bottom will be hurt and everybody on the top will do extremely well. Mm -hmm. The good side of it is everybody has the opportunity to create a corporation. So if anybody's out there that's doing it as a DBA or an LLC or a general partnership or uh, anything else, create this uh, corporate structure and pay the 15% tax instead of paying the 39% tax uh, which you'll be paying as an individual on the bottom. So that's, the, in a, a quick nutshell, what the tax plan is all about. Okay. Well, that's good preparation, Aisha, get that company started. <laughs> yes. So you want to talk a so, little bit about the rewriting of the regulations? I, I do, because that's more important than the tax plan. So, um, Trump actually signed two two actions in one day that could rewrite the legal regulations um, and overturn everything that Obama and Congress put together after the the, the uh, financial crisis in 2008. So one um, executive order sets what he calls core principles of financial regulation, and what it does is he claims it will empower Americans to make their own financial decisions, prevent tax payer-funded bailouts and reduced regulations on Wall Street. And he says this, he's doing this, and he had a reason for this, so that U.S. companies can compete globally. Um, what it does, though, is if you, if you loosen the regulations on Wall Street, it can roll back the, the landmark protection reform bill called Dodd-Frank, uh, which aimed to reduce the risk in the financial system. So It'll allow financial institutions to release new and aggressive and risky investment opportunities because they won't be restricted uh, by the by the rules anymore. So for us, in the short term, it could be attractive to make a quick profit, but that's how people got caught, you know, before with these financial instruments that nobody understood because now they hired these MIT scientists actually to create financial instruments that are so complex that nobody understands them that look uh, like they have little risk and high profitability, but they actually have extremely high risk. So that's one thing 
um, that we could be looking at because of that executive order. The second one, which I think is more important and frightening, is that there's a fiduciary rule, right? And the fiduciary rule um, is this. All right, so in the past, uh, financial, financial advisors were legally required to put their clients' best interests ahead of, ahead of their own. Donald Trump signed an executive order that is overturning that. So oh, no. the fiduciary rule is slated to go into effect uh, this month and uh, requires it, – it used to require viruses, like I said, to put their clients' interests ahead of theirs. He wants to get rid of that so that Wall Streeters can put their own interests before their clients. That's frightening to me. Oof. Well, whoa. <laughs> so now, where is this at? I mean, it has, is it signed? Yeah. That's on a retirement savings rule. So that, that set in motion the, the, the repeal of, of uh, you know, the, the fiduciary rule. All right. What a way to close. Okay, let's we got a few minutes left. Let's try to remain flexible, nimble and open. Let's talk about Yeah, that. so yes, the good thing is, like I said, a lot of you know, and Aisha said it well. She said that um don't look at what he says, look at what he does. And that means we have to pay extremely close attention every day to what's really happening. Um, because some of the executive orders, I think, are just for show to make it look like he's keeping campaign promises, but it's like uh, signing a, a toothless bill. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't really have any uh, great effect on what's going on. And some of the things that are designed to help the wealthiest elite on the top, we can also take advantage of. Just because he created it for them doesn't mean that we can't utilize it for ourselves. So, again, when we talk about um, – the, the tax structure for corporations, if it's only going to be 15%, then make as much money as you can and only get taxed 15%. If it's, you know, the putting tariffs on, on certain things, then it's creating businesses that before couldn't compete because of international trade, you know, being step, you know, set up in that. If it's, if it's um, getting into commodities and buying U.S. steel and U.S. oil and all those things, then we need to be on the ground floor and investing in those things so that we reap the benefits of those. Um, they did it for themselves, but it doesn't mean we can't put our hand in that too. So I think we need to, again, be, be flexible, be nimble, open to all opportunities, and keep our eyes wide open um, to what's really going on. Yeah, I think that's a, a critical point. Um, just to sort of recap, we talked about the swinging pendulum, the Trump promise, America first. We talked a little bit about that, and we know that that's what that was the uh, mantra of his campaign, Make America Great Again. Um, the fact that he signed 66 executive actions, and Haru went into a little bit about what does that exactly mean in executive action. He talked about deregulation, corporate interests versus people and the environment, and renegotiating trade agreements with NAFTA. And um, we are nearing to the end of our show, and we never want to get to the point where we have to just shut it down. So I'm going to stop now because we can flare it up again <laughs> with any Trump point. <laughs> I'd like to thank our guest, Aisha, for calling in and helping us understand a few things. And I especially want to thank her for helping me remember the name of the Water Warriors with the Dakota Pipeline. 
And maybe it's a good time to bring Queen Janazada back on, James, so she could talk about it from her boots-to-the-ground perspective. Well, we could do that. We'll, we'll give her a shout-out and see when she's ready to come on board. I think she'll do that without a problem. Sure, sure. And Heroic, once again, thank you, as always. Uh, Haru's next uh, Financial Thursday will be May 18th, so you put that on your calendar, save the date. We will announce that topic at another time. Coming up next week, we have a tribute to the Shylights with The Last Man Standing, the only living member of the iconic R&B recording group, The Shylights. Marshall Tompkins oh, will be here. Have you seen her? He'll be here to talk about his life and legacy and share some very special stories about The Shylights and some new news about what's coming up for them. And then we have coming up on, I am very excited about this, coming up on May 11th, we are going to delve into dreams. What are dreams? How do they affect us? Where do they come from? Are they significant? Are they real? We're going to be talking about how you can use dreams to guide you and sex in dreams. Wow. I don't got nothing to say. <laughs> yeah, Rafika. We, but we're going to go there. We are going there. Yes. And um, Amy Coelho, who we call her the dream lady, she's going to come on and just really open our doors to endless possibilities, um, ignite our fire on looking more into our dreams. And we've got some other exciting shows lined up. Once we get confirmations, we will be happy to send them in. I am Rafika, and again, I thank you all so very much for giving us your time tonight. And I'm Brother all of James. Our sh- all of our shows are archived on iTunes. You can go to our website, thekeys107network.com, and go to show episodes and click on any show and listen in there. If you have a show suggestion, call, email us at suggestions at thekeys107network.com. I hope I covered everything. (laughs) Good night. Yes, you did. Good night.